Welcome to Human Circus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of my series on the travels of Johann Schildberger, his journey, and the people and places it takes him to. If you haven't already listened to the first two episodes, I recommend you go back and do so before diving into this one. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would very much appreciate it if you would express that enjoyment through a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this. It doesn't take long, and it makes a huge difference in helping me reach more listeners. And now, let's get on with the episode. Quote, After Tamerlane had overcome Bayezid and returned to his own country, he went to war with the king's sultan, who is the chief king among infidels. He took with him 1,200,000 men, went into his territory, and lay siege to a city called Halap, which contains 400,000 houses. Then, the lord and governor of the city took with him 80,000 men, and went out and fought with Tamerlane, but he could not overcome him, and fled again into the city, and many people were killed in his flight. He continued to defend himself, but Tamerlane took a suburb on the fourth day, and the people he found in it he threw into the moat of the city, put timber and mire upon them, and filled the moat in four places. The moat was twelve fathom deep, and cut in the solid rock. Then he stormed the city, and took it by assault, and captured the governor, and fully occupied Halap. End quote. Last episode, we had a look at Schiltberger's time among the Ottomans, and a tumultuous time it was, as he first sought escape, then rode with his longtime captors, if we can still call them that, on a series of military expeditions that culminated in the Battle of Angora. Bayezid's sons are going to be struggling to put the pieces back together after that disaster, and, as you might guess from the fact that the Ottoman Empire would live to see World War I, at least one of them would find some success in doing so. However, we're not going to be following that today. We'll continue with Schiltberger as he tells of his own circumstances, and of Timur the Conqueror. As I mentioned last episode, some of the events in this one actually occurred before Timur defeated Bayezid, and before Schiltberger's time with him. But I'm telling the story in this order partly because it's the order Schiltberger told it in, and also because it lets us bundle all the Timur material neatly together. Some items to clarify immediately. The Tamerlane referred to a moment ago in that Schiltberger quote is, in fact, Timur. Tamerlane, perhaps the name you're more familiar with, is an anglicization of the Farsi Timori Lang, meaning Timur the Lame. The Lame part being the unfortunate result of an early-life sheep raid that had earned Timur an arrow in the leg. Further clarification, this King Sultan Schiltberger mentions is the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt who we met last episode, Nasir ad-Din Faraj. And finally, the Halap which Timur was besieging was in fact a city you've probably heard quite a bit about in recent years. Timur was besieging Aleppo. Schildberger's description of this event, though he clearly wasn't there himself, gives us a picture of the kind of brutality that Timur is well known for. Remember him bloodlessly, oh so bloodlessly, burying the defenders of Sivas alive? 
Well, here we see him filling a 12-fathom moat with people at four places. 12 fathoms, if you're not sure what that equates to, is apparently 72 feet, or about 22 meters. And I haven't found a good source for how deep this moat really was, and if this is even remotely accurate. But that's a lot of space to have to fill with human bodies. It should be noted, for fairness, or at least completeness, that Timur perhaps did feel provoked into action. He had sent an envoy to the Mamluk Sultan, but the governor of Damascus had ordered this ambassador taken and then cut in half at the waist. Maybe Timur needed no excuse to engage in warfare, he rarely did. And maybe shared faith would never have deterred him from invading Syria. It certainly wouldn't deter his attack on the Ottomans. But this killing of an ambassador was a clear end to any possibility of peace. In the fall of 1400, Timur moved south, putting the Ottomans aside for a few years and taking one fortress after another until he reached Aleppo. Following battle before the city, in which a feigned flight, a classic Mongol tactic, led first to envelopment of the defenders and then a successful siege, Timur's army gained the city. Schiltberger describes what follows very briefly, quote, they pillaged it. Other sources, however, paint a picture of widespread violence, days of massacre, burning, and looting, culminating in Timur's grisly trademark, looming pyramids of heads. And this might be as good a time as any to rewind a little and establish who Timur was. If you're not familiar with him, you might be wondering who exactly we're talking about, this shadowy figure appearing out of the void to crush the Ottomans and sweep across Syria. Something of an answer to that question will become clear in the telling. But for now, we should establish the basics before looking at Schiltberger's depiction of Timur's deeds. The Conqueror was by this point already well-established as an enormously powerful figure. For roughly thirty years, his armies had been on the move, from Baghdad to Moscow to Delhi, building what we now call the Timurid Empire, the Turco-Mongol power that spread across Central Asia in the late 14th century. Timur was born near Samarkand in present-day Uzbekistan, at a place called Sharizabz, the Green City. You'll often see April 9th, 1336, listed as the exact date of birth, but this may simply have been an invention of the chroniclers. That aside, it's hard to be more precise than some time in the 30s. The area he was raised within had been part of the Mongol Khanate, specifically the Chagatai Khanate, where Genghis's second son Chagatai had ruled, and the tribe he was part of, the Barlas, marked its descent from within Genghis's confederation. Their religion was Islam, their language Turkic, and, in keeping with their Mongol history, they were nomads, or at least semi-nomadic, reliant on the horse in all things, and in battle and hunting on the composite bow, crafted of wood, horn, and sinew. His armies were modeled on the old Mongol decimal system, divisible in neat units of tens and hundreds, and with subsumed peoples scattered throughout. He was ever active, in him there seems to have existed a constant thirst for fresh conquest, which might have been driven equally by a drive to embody Chinggis and a need to retain the loyalty of his great horde. Recognizing that an army, which regularly had opportunities for plunder, was a happy army, and a well-paid and a unified one, he was constantly campaigning, pressing for fresh conquests even when his advisors cautioned him against pushing on. 
In his military campaigns, Timur would, for the most part, not break new ground. His advance was that of a tide coming back in, retracing the steps of the earlier Mongol conquests, or actually coming at the expense of fellow heirs to Genghis's legacy, as in the case of his ongoing conflict with the Golden Horde. The narrative value of that legacy was not at all lost to Timur, who sought to connect himself to the great Khan, for example through marriage to a dead rival's widow, the daughter of the region's last Chagatai Khan, allowing Timur to trace a line right back to Genghis. This he did, referring to himself as son-in-law to the great Khan, and later establishing a puppet Chagatai Khan as supreme ruler. But even as he sought to evoke the memory of a proud Mongol past, he looked, if often in highly selective ways, to the laws of Islam and declared himself the sword of Islam. Timur recognized as his teacher Imam Sayyid Baraka, a man he held in such high esteem that he wanted to be buried next to him, facing him, so that, as one chronicle has it, at the day of judgment, when everyone should lift up their hands to heaven to implore assistance of some intercessor, he might lay hold on the robe of this child of the Prophet Muhammad. On Timur's banner, the horse's tail, a powerful Mongol symbol, flew alongside the crescent. This mixture of Chinggis and Muhammad, carried forward through aggressively militant expansion and atrocity, had proved a potent one, and from early opportunism and seizing local power, Timur had swept outwards with little in the way of setbacks or defeats. By the time he enters our story, he's at his peak, an old man certainly, but one wielding immense power, and still doing so in the field, not from the safety of his palace. As Schildberger tells us, after Aleppo fell, Damascus was not far behind. Schildberger pauses briefly over the wonders of Damascus, turning, as he sometimes does, to a kind of travel writer for a moment, selling us on the sights to be seen. The temple, he says, is grand enough to require forty external gates, and within are hung twelve thousand lamps, many being silver and gold, of which nine thousand are lit daily, save on Friday, when all of them are lit. That established, Schildberger tells us of the Mamluk Sultan coming out to intervene on Damascus' behalf, sending twelve thousand men to its defense, and with thirty thousand moving to meet Timur. Nasir ad-Din Faraj will not oppose Timur in battle, however, instead retreating back towards his own capital in the face of the conqueror's advance, leaving poisoned water and grasslands behind him to blunt pursuit. Timur, rather than lose further men in such a chase, turns back to Damascus. And Schildberger has this to say of what happens there. Quote, then he turned against Damascus and besieged it for thirteen months, but could not take it. During those three months, they fought every day, and when the twelve thousand men saw that they had no assistance from their lord, they asked Timur to be allowed to pass. He consented, and they left the city at night and returned to their lord. Then Timur stormed the city and took it by assault. And now, soon after he had taken the city, came to him a kind of bishop and fell at his feet and begged for mercy for himself and his priests. Timur ordered that he should go with his priests into the temple, so the priests took their wives, their children, and many others into the temple for protection, until there were thirty thousand young and old. Now Timur gave orders that when the temple was full, the people inside should be shut up in it, 
This was done. Then wood was placed around the temple, and he ordered it to be ignited, and they all perished in the fire. Then he ordered that each one of his soldiers should bring him the head of a man. This was done, and it took three days. Then with these heads were constructed three towers, and the city was pillaged. The famed traveler Ibn Battuta had visited Damascus in 1326, around 75 years earlier. He had said of it then that it surpassed all other cities in beauty, and no description, however full, could do justice to its charms. Of its ill-fated Umayyad Mosque, he said it was the most magnificent mosque in the world, the finest in construction and noblest in beauty, grace and perfection. It was matchless and unequaled. As a man who had seen a great many great cities, he had some basis for comparison. The details of the taking of Damascus unsurprisingly vary significantly in the telling. Accounts other than Schultberger's actually placed the Mamluk Sultan's army within sight of the city walls, a sight which inspires the defenders to stream forth to establish positions outside the walls and offer battle, thinking the winds turning in their favor. But imagine their bitter surprise to find one morning that by the rising sun, Nasir's army was no longer visible. It had melted away in the night, and it was bound for Cairo to face down a rival's bid for power. Another detail which Schiltberger's telling omits is of a negotiated surrender on the part of the city. This was apparently followed by a spirited assault on Timur's soldiers by a group of holdouts in the citadel. And perhaps that was what provoked Timur's orders that the city was to be destroyed, its people slaughtered, and its treasures and other material goods plundered. There is some argument as to whether or not Timur did in fact order the burning of the Umayyad Mosque. Some even say he wished to save it from the fires that had spread. But there's little disagreement over the aftermath, the ruinous violence that was done to the city and to its people. One 15th century Egyptian historian writes of 19 days of killing and rape performed on a mass scale, after which survivors were bound and taken away, leaving children under the age of five. The city was then torched. He concludes, quote, Timur, may God curse him, departed from Damascus, having been there 80 days. The whole city had been burned. The roofs of the Umayyad mosque had fallen in because of the fire. Its gates were gone, and the marble cracked. Nothing was left standing but the walls. Of the other mosques of the city, its palaces, caravanserais, and baths, nothing remained but wasted ruins and empty traces. Only a vast number of children were left there who died or were destined to die of hunger. It's not an image I like to linger over, but we should recognize that Timur does not merely seem a brutal figure across the great distance of time and culture. He is a brutal figure, and, as we'll see, is said to be responsible for a number of atrocities of this sort. These horrors aside, there is another episode to the story of Timur in Damascus, which I'd like to touch on here. Timur was not the only giant of his era present there. Damascus was a thriving center, and doubtless housed many prominent figures of the time. But there was also a guest then in the city, a man born in Tunis, but widely traveled a lifelong intriguer and player of politics, a cadi or judge, familiar with power, but also a philosopher of history of startling originality, a famed historian, in fact, widely respected long after his death. In Damascus at the time, 
with Evan Khaldun. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ibn Khaldun spent 35 days about Timur's camp, often in conversation with him. And in a letter written shortly thereafter, he spoke of him in terms that were somewhat surprising given his position as a Qadi appointed by Timur's enemy, the Mamluk Sultan in Cairo. He wrote, quote, This King Timur is one of the greatest and mightiest of kings. Some attribute to him knowledge, Others consider him a Shiite because they note his preference for the members of the family of the Prophet. Still others attribute to him the employment of magic and sorcery. But in all this, there is nothing but rumor. It is simply that he is highly intelligent, addicted to debate and argumentation about what he knows and also what he does not know. He is between 60 and 70 years old. His right knee is lame from an arrow which struck him while raiding in his youth as he told me. Therefore he dragged it when he went on short walks. But when he would go long distances, men carried him with their hands. He is one who is favored by God. The power is God's, and he grants it to whom he chooses of his creatures. End quote. Unfortunately for us, Ibn Khaldun, with his 35 days of familiarity, his knowledge and theories of history, and his general worldliness, was really in a better place to provide observations on Timur than our friend Schiltberger was. It would be more than a year after the taking of Damascus that Schiltberger himself would fall under Timur's control. And even then, what must his life have been like? Unlike his time with the Ottomans, there will be no indications of any agency whatsoever. No, and I was also there and went with them. Not for a while, at least. Perhaps this was because his freedoms were severely limited. Maybe he lived in chains for a period, or in a similar situation, simply unable really to go anywhere once dragged back to Samarkand after the Battle of Angora. And yet, Schildberger does eventually say of Timur that he rode after him, meaning he followed him among his retinue or army. Possibly, then, he simply did not want to speak of taking part in actions on Timur's behalf of partaking in the slaughter that implied, and who could blame him for that? Whatever the case may be, we have in the meantime Schiltberger the reporter, giving his account of further episodes he was certainly not present for. There are two of these items I think I should cover here, events which Schiltberger must have learned of one way or another after being captured from the Ottomans. In the first case, he had not even left Bavaria, and could not have imagined the life that lay ahead. It was 1387, and Timur was besieging Isfahan, a city south of Tehran described by Ibn Battuta as one of the largest and fairest of cities, boasting apricots of unequaled quality with sweet almonds in their kernels, 
quinces whose sweetness and size cannot be paralleled, splendid grapes, and wonderful melons. Timor actually seems to have come to the city, willing to enjoy a peaceful takeover. And he had every reason to think things might come off that way. He had, in recent years, received a letter from the region's ruler, a member of a Persian family that had come to the forefront as the Mongol Ilkhanate had collapsed. The Shah wrote in his letter, quote, I have tasted all the pleasures I could reasonably expect during the 53 years I have stayed upon earth. In brief, I die as I have lived, and I have abandoned all the vanities of the world. Although it is not at all necessary to commend to you my loved son, Zain al-Abedin, God grant him a long life under the shadow of your protection. I leave him to the care of God and your majesty. As he departed the earth, the Shah was turning over his domain, his son's domain, really, to Timur. Even as he left his cities to his sons and nephews, he'd signed their futures away. And now, Timur was knocking on the gates of Isfahan and making known his intention of cashing that check. Initially, the Shah's nephew, Shah Mansur, seemed ready to fulfill his uncle's commitments without violence. And Isfahan's people gave themselves and their city up to Timur and agreed to accept his rule. He, in turn, left 6,000 men and departed. But when the people knew he was clear of the city, and, in other tellings, had an inkling of the ruinous taxation they could expect, they revolted. Schildberger relates that the people waited until they knew Timur was out of the region, and that then they slaughtered 6,000 of his men. Though the number was likely lower, the risk may have been higher, for other sources tell us that Timur and his army were actually encamped before the city at night, when the drumming of an anonymous blacksmith roused the city's people to violent revolt. By the morning at the latest, Timur would have perceived the betrayal, and he would not have been happy. Indeed, Timur was so unhappy at the turn of events that he ordered the city's population killed, 70,000 of them, and he accomplished this in traditional Mongol fashion. Every group of soldiers was responsible for a certain number of Isfahani heads to be presented for inspection to the officers. It is reported that some of Timur's men were a little squeamish about proceeding with the mass slaughter, and that this drove a healthy market in gently used heads. Such qualms do not seem to have lingered long, though, as the killing accelerated and, as would become typical in stories of cities taken by Timur, great pyramids of skulls formed outside the city. One chronicler is said to have walked around Isfahan after the slaughter and counted 28 towers of 1,500 heads each. But I have to imagine he didn't actually count them. This was a very rough guess, a kind of jelly beans in the jar for crueler times and I question how accurate such an estimate possibly could be. But none of this is yet really the horrible part. Schiltberger reports, in an odd complication, that Timur doesn't just wake up and sack the city. Instead, he tells its rebellious people that he can forgive their transgression, and he will do so. But he's going to need their archers first. He has something he needs to do, a simple task really, and archers are needed. So the hopeful city sends him 12,000 of theirs. So he takes them, and he cuts off all their thumbs, and he releases them back into the city. He then enters the effectively archerless Isfahan, and commences the slaughter, 
But the horrible part is still to come. For me, at least, it comes when Schiltberger tells of the children of Isfahan. Those under seven, and there were seven thousand of them, are placed on the plain outside the city. And, unlike Bayezid, Timur will not listen to his counselors' pleas on their behalf, does not allow himself to be moved to mercy. Instead, he orders them trampled by horse, and he actually makes the first passes himself, when his people are initially reluctant to do so. Then, he sets fire to the city, and he leaves. The other event that Schiltberger reports on, which brings us forward again to March 1398, is Timur's invasion of northern India. Schiltberger, working in nicely balanced figures, tells us that Timur made preparations for four months, for he was set on a destination that was four months distant from his capital, and that he eventually went forth with an army of 400,000. Let's hear his description of the expedition. Quote, when the time came, he crossed a desert of two days' journey. There is a great want of water, and then he got to a mountain which took him eight days before he came out of it. On this mountain, there is a path where camels and horses must be bound to planks and lowered. Then he came to a valley where it is so dark that people cannot see each other by the light of day, and it is of half a day's journey. Then he came to a high mountainous country, in which he traveled for three days and three nights. And then he got to a beautiful plain, where lies the capital of the country. End quote. It's an evocative description, but it doesn't quite communicate how dramatic a venture this was. Know first that this was a 1,500-kilometer road trip, about 1,000 miles, but that this number does not take into account the varied and difficult terrain involved. Terrain that could easily turn it into a 2,000-kilometer endeavor instead. There are rivers, deserts, and the Hindu Kush mountain range with its stunning 25,000-foot peaks. No easy task for 400,000 or even, as is more likely, 90,000 people to accomplish, and with perhaps twice that many horses along as well. The whole thing would have been a tremendous feat of logistics and survival, here building a bridge over the Oxus so that they might cross, there turning aside with a fraction of his army to deal with the Katir. The Katir were a tribal group inhabiting this mountain region, and Hilda Hookham describes their near-legendary status well. They were, quote, Fire worshippers, they were said to be huge as giants, speaking in an unknown language, clad in black, with hearts as dark as their clothes. Others were said to go quite naked. They were said to have resisted Alexander the Great when he'd gone east, and now Timur was not going to leave them at his back as he proceeded towards Delhi. But to dislodge them was not going to be easy either. He and his section of his army were operating at over 12,000 feet in treacherous icy conditions. At points, his men would need to lower him, supposedly 1,000 feet on a litter. They'd try the same with horses, but it wasn't feasible. The horses didn't survive. So they went on unmounted, Timur included, until they reached the Katir stronghold. The resistance was fierce, but that only guaranteed the result. Towers of Skulls, and Timur went on, rejoining the main body of his troops, and getting closer to Delhi. They would stop at Kabul in August, receiving ambassadors, promises of loyalty, and treasure. And then they'd move on, 
reaching the Indus in September, there again building a bridge for the purpose, and crossing the river in two days. By October they reached Multan, in present-day Pakistan, where Timur's grandson Pir Muhammad had been besieging the city with the army's vanguard. Both besiegers and besieged were in dreadful shape, beaten down by disease and starvation, even said to be reduced to eating human corpses inside the walls. But the coming of Timur and his fresh men and horses broke the deadlock, prompting surrender. The full army moved on, leveling villages that may have been complicit in resisting Pir Muhammad. There are stories here of, of massacres and of mass imprisonments, the countryside starting to empty out before him as he destroyed what could not be plundered. By December, the trek is nearly over. Delhi is waiting, described by Arab Shah as a great city where men skilled in various arts are gathered, a home of merchants, a mine of gems and perfumes, too great to besiege. And even if it's been weakened by internal division, it's still waiting with the Sultan Mahmud, who is not at all inclined to surrender, and had 10,000 horse, 20 to 40,000 infantry, and, most terrifyingly, 120 war elephants to support him. The first encounter is just a minor fight, advanced units against a cavalry sortie from the city, but it seems to have triggered two things. One, Timur, not wanting to get bogged down in a sustained siege, found that he could in fact draw the city's defenders out into open battle. Two, the prisoners, taken thus far in the campaign, cheered uproariously as they saw those defenders riding out. And this apparently made Timur extremely nervous. So overcome with apprehension was he, that he ordered all of the prisoners killed immediately, purportedly as many as 50 to 100,000 of them. Supposedly, Timur objected to the inclusion of these numbers in the court chronicles, comparing himself to a chef, and arguing that his work ought to be judged by the meal produced, and not by the gore on his hands as he prepared it. But either way, he now needn't worry about uprisings from within his own encampment, and he could focus entirely on the task before him. And before him were those war elephants. People often argue that elephants in war are nowhere near as effective as you might think. But I suspect that's not something you internalize when you're across the field from them. These were 120, or 400 in Schiltberger's telling, living, breathing war machines, giants wrapped in armor, boasting squads of archers, Greek fire, protective turrets, and, though at first it sounds unnecessary, tusk-mounted scimitars that were, though it sounds spectacularly unnecessary, said to be poisoned. Your first sight of these monsters could, I'm sure, easily make you forget you were there along with a nigh-invincible 90,000-man army, an army that had itself spread terror across a huge stretch of the world. Timur needed an answer to this problem, and the one he would arrive at was cruel, clever, and effective. It was the 17th of December when Sultan Mahmud's army came out to offer combat. Timur's astrologers had not offered him positive signs, but his reading of the Quran for that day spoke of better things. An omnipotent figure destroying a people, 
and so the day was approved. From the chronicler Yazdi, we read that, So hot a battle was never seen before. The fury of soldiers was never carried to so great excess, and so frightful a noise was never heard. For the cymbals, the common kettle drums, the drums and trumpets, with the great brass kettle drums which were beat on the elephants' backs, the bells which the Indians sounded, and the cries of the soldiers, were enough to make even the earth shake. Initial maneuverings went Timur's way, and his enemy's left flank was in disarrayed retreat when the elephants were signaled forward. On Timur's side, trenches had been dug and reinforced, buffaloes lashed together as living walls before them, kultrops fashioned and placed, and something else was made ready too. As Schiltberger tells us, one of Timur's counselors had stepped forward and offered some advice. Advice that was put into practice and executed. Quote, Suleiman advised that camels should be taken and wood fastened on them, and when the elephants advanced, the wood should be ignited, and the camels driven up against the elephants. Thus would they be subdued by the fire and the cries of the camels, because the elephants are afraid of fire. Then Timur took 20,000 camels and prepared them as above described, and the sultan came with his elephants in front. Timur went out to meet him and drove the camels up against the elephants, the wood on them being on fire. The camels cried out, and when the elephants saw the fire and heard the great cries, they took to flight, so that none could hold them. When the elephants broke, running in fearful panic from Timur's burning camels, they inflicted terrible damage on their own side. It needed only one last push, a charge from Pir Muhammad on Timur's right, to send the soldiers of Delhi running for the shelter of their walls. The day, the field, and the city were all Timur's. In Schildberger's telling, that was about the end of it. The brilliant and repulsive burning of 20,000 camels had brought about its victory, and all that was left was for his opposite number to pledge allegiance, military support when it was asked for, many precious stones, and two zentner of the gold of India roughly 200 pounds. Timur then returned to his own country and took with him 100 war elephants, elephants which, as we know, he'd be putting to use soon at Angora. But there was a bit more to his army's taking of Delhi than this. It was not nearly so neat and tidy as an agreement made after the battle and both sides going their peaceful ways. There was the triumphal entry into the city first, with Timur accepting the submission of its most noteworthy people, and viewing with approval a parade of the elephants, themselves made to kneel before him to the accompaniment of celebratory music and commemorative poetry. Then, there was the business of the city's ransom, collected from each citizen according to their rank and wealth. There were a lot of Timur's soldiers within the city now, accomplishing their various tasks and more streamed in, for over the next week the city's gates were left open out of respect. Soon, there were said to be 15,000 of Timur's fighters inside the walls, and the results started to look inevitable, building towards an ugly end. It's hard to pick out a first act here, a kicking off of violence and initial disagreement. But there are reports that the terrible ransoms being demanded, and the abuses of the soldiers, caused people to rise up, either in violence against the soldiers, or against themselves, as they torched their own houses and flung themselves in. 
Timur's emirs, are said to have tried to contain matters by shutting the gates. But his men forced them open again, letting those outside pour in to take part in the extremely bloody sacking of Delhi and the construction of the usual Tower of Skulls. There is disagreement over exactly to what degree these events were beyond Timur's foresight or control. He was, as Hookham points out, not in the habit of leaving sources of wealth behind after a conquest, and he was much more inclined to satisfy his own troops than he was to any acts of mercy. Whether or not he was, as reported, enjoying a banquet at the time, it seems unlikely that he would have objected much to what happened. There were other battles, other sieges and slaughters on this campaign, but we're going to leave Timur and his men to stagger home under the weight of obscene wealth. We'll wait for them in Samarkand, the city Schiltberger was bound for after the Battle of Angora. We have little in the way of clues as to his life there, but we know quite a bit about his new home. One source for this knowledge is a Castilian ambassador by the name of Roy González de Clavijo of Madrid who left us a wonderful travel narrative titled Life and Acts of the Great Tamerlane, with a description of the lands of his empire and lordship. Among those present at the Battle of Angora had been a pair of knights sent by Henry III of Castile, who sent his embassies widely. They had been well treated by Timor, and, soon after, Henry had received an envoy with gifts and greetings from Timor. On the 21st of May, 1403, he responded in kind, by sending a party which departed from near Cadiz in southwestern Spain. With Clavijo along, they hoped to reach Timor before he left Anatolia, but in this they would be unsuccessful. Unanticipated adventures awaited. There'd be mishaps at sea, split sails, lost rudders, and shipwreck. There'd be an unplanned winter near Constantinople. There'd be continually disappointed hopes of catching up to Timor at just the next stop. They deal with hard roads, bandits, tolls, and death. And Clavijo would record the features of interest as he passed. Architecture, embassies, marketplaces, and foods. Clavijo comments extensively on the topic of food. At last, they were brought to Samarkand on September the 8th, 1404, at the end of a 15-month and almost 6,000-mile journey. How is my son the king? Is he in good health? Timor apparently asked them when they finally arrived. Not the only time he referred to their king this way. The Samarkand they found, the one Schiltberger would have found, was truly a grand place. If I have given the impression that Timor was given to willy-nilly fits of slaughter and delighted in indiscriminate taking of heads, then I've been somewhat misleading. Timor did indeed discriminate when taking heads. He valued highly the heads and bodies of all kinds of artisans and craftsmen, and, as a result, had gathered from across the great stretch of his conquests the best his time had to offer. As Clavijo reports, from Damascus he brought weavers of silk, and men who made bows, glass, and earthenware, so that of those articles, Samarkand produces the best in the world. From Turkey, he brought archers, masons, and silversmiths. He also brought men skilled in making engines of war. The outskirts of the city were named after the great cities he had conquered, Baghdad, Damascus, Shiraz, and so on, establishing Samarkand itself as the truly great city, the seat of an emperor. 
It was filled with formal gardens, exquisitely laid out, and with names like Garden of Paradise, the Model of the World, the Sublime Garden. Each was large enough to accommodate streams, lakes, orchards, and palaces. As an example, the Northern Garden featured a palace made of Tabriz marble, its frescoes painted by Persian artists overseen by a master taken from Baghdad depicted the conqueror's many victories, many kings, lords, and sultans offering tribute, many feasts and banquets, and the many realms that were his. Another garden was reported by Arab Shah to be so large that when one of the builders lost his horse in the enclosure, it was six months before the wandering animal was found again. Samarkand's natural setting was also ideal. Aided by the river, The land produced enormous amounts of fruit, wheat, and cotton. There were vineyards in abundance and space enough for plentiful livestock. Clavijo was apparently quite impressed by the food situation, being not immune to the temptations of the belly, and he commented approvingly on everything from the plumpness of the animals to the reasonable prices of meat, fruit, and grains. He also noted the contents of the markets. Furs from Russia, silk and gems from China, spices from India, and cloth, glass, and metal from Syria and Anatolia. Samarkand benefited heavily from the trade caravans that passed through it, and also, of course, from the staggering wealth which decades of war had drained from the surrounding world and brought to the city. Clavijo and his party spent about three months in and around Samarkand, three months in which they observed Timur flitting from garden to garden, pavilion to pavilion, and palace to palace, one night enjoying a banquet here and the next a feast at a new location, roast horse and sheep, rice and wine, tremendous amounts of wine whether one was inclined or not, tarts made with flour, sugar, and herbs, and a drink of sugared cream. On Wednesday, the 8th of October, we read that the ambassadors chose not to eat, when given the option, and returned to their lodgings, a sure sign that Clavijo had been indulging heavily. Timur received one embassy after another, conducting the day-to-day business of empire. He ordered a variety of amusements be performed. He ordered hangings and punishments, and he played chess chess to which he had apparently added both spaces and pieces to increase its complexity. But Timur would not be content to while away his last years in the splendor of the imperial capital. His eyes, Schildberger tells us, had turned to China, the domain of the Yongli emperor, Zhu Di of the Ming dynasty. Timur's pivot towards China shows up in Clavijo's narrative, too. When the Spanish ambassadors are first seated near Timur, They are initially placed beneath the Chinese embassy, but Timur intervenes, conveying to the Chinese representative that those who were ambassadors from the king of Spain, his son and friend, should sit above him, and that he was the ambassador of a thief and a bad man, his enemy, should sit below them. This thief and bad man, the Chinese emperor, had sent word to Timur that his land was only his, as the Chinese emperor allowed, that Judi required payment every year, and that it had been seven years, five according to Schildberger, since such payment had been offered. In both narratives, Timur agrees that this is true, but informs Judi's representatives that he will not pay, that he will not be subject to him. And in Schildberger, he continues to say that he will be paying the Chinese ruler a visit. Clavijo's visit 
was actually cut short because, he was told, Timor was sick to the point of death. But a week later, Timor and his armies were on the march to China. This was not a spur-of-the-moment decision, though, a sudden fit of irritation. Timor had been putting the pieces into place for quite some time. In late 1401, one of his emirs had been dispatched to lay the groundwork for invasion. He was to map the route and make preparations for the movement of a large army. To this end, much had been done. He had chosen a path and developed agricultural land to support an army of horse and men. He'd raised crops and built forts at key points and provided Timor with a map, even as the conqueror was still in Anatolia. East of Samarkand, all were put to work, preparing the soil to feed an invasion. The region was put on a footing of total war. Despite all this, the challenge was still great, perhaps too great for a ruler who was now likely 70 years old, perhaps older. Schildberger tells us that 1,800,000 men went east with Timor, but even if we accept the lower estimates of 200,000, it's still an enormous army and an equally enormous logistical puzzle. They had 4,000 kilometers in a winter to go, and it was going to be too much. Who knows what might have happened had Timor been a younger man on that journey, but even for the young and fit, this was a punishing adventure. Perhaps better to say, who knows what might have happened had he left at a different time of year. Maybe the two questions are not so different, actually. Timor had been planning and preparing this for years, but maybe he knew his time was short, and this is what hurried his departure that winter, when he might have easily waited for spring. As it was, Arab Shah has the following to say, quote, The wind blew on the breath of man, it quenched his spirit and froze him on his horse, and also the camels, until it destroyed all softer constitutions. Therefore, many perished in his army, noble and base alike, and the winter destroyed great and small amongst them. Yet Timur cared not for the dying, and grieved not for those that had perished. It was January, and they were about 250 miles from Samarkand. Scouts sent ahead reported the roads covered with snow to the depth of two spears. No matter what was tried, they couldn't keep Timur himself warm and well, and his diet couldn't have helped. At times he gave up on solids, pressing on with wine and spirits. He became sick in his stomach and bowels, and some said it was a result of his drinking. But he would not alter his habits and his sickness did not lessen. Understandably, in a 70-year-old man who ate poorly, drank heavily, exerted himself, and exposed his body to a harsh winter. In Schiltberger's telling, he turns back now, forced to by the loss of men, horses, and cattle. In other tellings, it is his health that stops him. In Arab Shah, we see him stricken, coughing like a camel that is strangled. His color was nigh quenched and his cheeks foamed like a camel dragged backwards with the rain. And if one saw the angels that tormented him, they showed the joy with which they threatened the wicked, to lay waste to their houses and utterly destroy the whole memory of them. He continues, The hand of death gave him a cup to drink. Then they brought garments of hair from hell and drew forth his soul like a spit from a soaked fleece and he was carried to the cursing and punishment of God, remaining in torment and God's infernal punishment. In Schildberger, on the other hand, Timur's death is an almost comedic affair. He says, 
It is to be noted that three causes made Timor fret, so that he became ill and died of that same illness. The first cause was that one of his vassals had gotten greedy and disappeared with a sizable tribute payment. The second was that another of his vassals had had an affair with his youngest wife, and upon learning of this, Timor had had that wife beheaded. Thirdly, when he ordered a pursuit of this vassal, the commander of that pursuit sent warning on so that the vassal escaped. As Schiltberger reports, it fretted him so much that he had killed his wife and that the vassal had escaped, that he died, and was buried in the country with great magnificence. What should we make of Schiltberger's version of events? Presumably, this was the story he heard, but what was the purpose of a narrative that removed Timur's death from the icy campaign against China? Perhaps it was an issue of local politics, difficult to reconstruct, or perhaps it was a case of finding the great conqueror's weakness, not on the trail of conquest, but domestically with a woman. Stories of deaths or defeats so often seem to find ways to make themselves acceptable, to not jar too much the ears of the listener. And Schiltberger, he would be just fine. As he'd lived through other changes, he would live through this one. We'll end this episode with Schiltberger's telling of his circumstances. You should know that Timur left two sons. The eldest was named Sharuk, who had a son to whom Timur gave his capital, and the country that belonged to it. And to each of his two sons, Sharuk and Moran Shah, he gave a kingdom in Persia, and other large territories that belonged to them. After the death of Timur, I came to his son named Sharuk, who had a kingdom, the capital of which is called Herat. Here I remained with Moran Shah, the son of Timur. Circus will return.